Let me now introduce Sri Rajiv Malhotra ji, who has trained and influenced a whole generation of intellectual warriors in India. Sri Rajiv ji is an internationally known researcher, writer, speaker, and public intellectual on current affairs, as he relates to civilizations, cross-cultural encounters, religion, and science. He studied physics and computer science and served in multiple careers, including software development executive, Fortune 100 senior corporate executives, strategy consultant, and successful entrepreneur in the information technology and media industries. However, at the peak of his career, he took early retirement at the age of 44 to pursue philanthropy, research, and public service. He established Infinity Foundation for this purpose in 1994. Rajivji has conducted original research in a variety of fields and has influenced many other thinkers in India and the West. Some of the major pioneering and game-changing publications authored by Rajivji are Invading the Sacred, Being Different and Indian Challenge to Western Universalism, Breaking India, Western Interventions in Dravidian and Dalit Fault Lines, Indra's Net, Defending Hinduism, Philosophical Unity, and The Battle of Sanskrit, Is Sanskrit Political or Sacred, Oppressive or Liberating, Dead or Alive, and many more. Through these words, Rajivji has pioneered a new approach in the study of India and Hinduism. He has disrupted the mainstream thought process among academic and non-academic intellectuals alike by providing fresh proactive positions on dharma and India. By doing a brilliant Purva Paksha, Rajivji has paved the way for intellectual Kshatriyas to reverse the case and present India's view of Western ideas. Currently, Rajiv Malhotraji is a full-time founder-director of Infinity Foundation, which has published a 14-volume series on the history of Indian science and technology. Infinity Foundation has funded and organized global conferences on a wide range of topics including Indian mind sciences, comparative religion, and Swadeshi ideology. I can say Indology. Sir, it is an honor for us to celebrate your monumental contribution towards the reawakening of India. Now, let me take the privilege to introduce our distinguished chief guest, Sri Subramanian Swami, sir. Sri Subramanian Swami, sir, is an Indian politician, economist, and statistician who serves as a nominated member of parliament in Rajya Sabha. He was the president of Janta Party until it merged with BJP. Sir has served as a member of the Planning Commission of India and was a cabinet minister in Chandrasekhar government. Earlier in 1978, Swamiji was a member of a group of eminent persons and was called to Geneva, Switzerland to prepare a report for UNCTAD, that is United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, on economic cooperation between developing countries, that is ECDC, Swami sir also simplified trade procedures 
and formulated a new export strategy, which became the forerunner of trade reform adopted subsequently. In 1994, Swami Sir was chairman of the Commission on Labor Standards and International Trade by former Prime Minister P.V. Narsema Raoji. Besides, Sir has been the original campaigner against corruption by bringing into light the Toji case. He founded Action Committee Against Corruption in India, that is ACACI, on 14th of October 2011 and acted as a chairperson ACI's goal is to take specific action against corruption at very high places of government and Indian black money stashed abroad. He had mentioned six simple steps in his letter which may recover money stashed abroad easily. Swami Sir is the national president of the Virat Hindustan Sangam, that is VHS, whose mission is to educate the youngsters of India about the heritage and culture of this great land and to pave the way for Hindu renaissance based on the concepts of Sanatan Dharma. So thank you, the dignity. Namaste and well, welcome to all of you. It gives me immense pleasure to welcome two of India's pioneering thinkers, Sri Raji Malhotraji and Sri Subramaniam Swamiji. I warm, warmly welcome all of the, all the various dignitaries and esteemed guests and faculty members present in the auditorium. Let me begin by congratulating Sri Raji Malhotraji on publishing yet another groundbreaking work to educate Hindu society about the new norms, new forms of the threat we are facing. I have been associated with Rajivji for over 15 years. During this time, we previously launched two of his major books, namely Breaking India and The Battle for Sanskrit. We have also published a series of booklets based on the multi-volume History of Indian Science and Technology series. Furthermore, Rajivji has recorded online courses for us based on his Breaking India. This course is available on the website of Center for Indian Studies. I equally cherish our association with Dr. Subramaniam Swamiji. I fondly remember the occasion when Dr. Swami was our special guest two years ago, Dr. Swami's presence galvanized our students and faculty members and his lecture titled, Who Are We? was received with huge applause from the audience. Dr. Swami, your words of wisdom have been a constant source of motivation for us and I am glad to inform you that Indus University has been working for restoring the dharmic narrative of India. For this purpose, we have pioneered several initiatives that pertain to, our, to the various issues concerning our national security, our unique civilizational identity, and the threats we are facing from various breaking India forces. We have integrated Indic ideas and insights into mainstream academic through various courses, talks, 
essays and customized modules. I can say, like uh, wisdom about the Sanatana Dham was spreaded by Swami Vivekanandji about 125 years back, then followed by Sri Arvindji, Sitaram Goelji, and now it is uh, Sri Rajivji. And I uh, consider this uh, book, Snakes in Ganga, it's like uh, Astin Ke Saap. It's a very important book for us to understand because so many divisive forces are working against India. With these words, I'll take my seat. Bhaut bhaut dhanyavad aap sabko aane ke liye. Dr. Nagesh Bhandari, Dr. Ms. Bhandari, Mrs. Bhandari, uh, Dr. Sharma, um, if I may call him my friend, Rajiv Malhotra, I better not be his enemy. <laughs> Congratulations uh, to this great institution for having organized a book launch on this new book of uh, Rajiv Malhotra, uh, Snakes in the Ganga. I've known him, uh, Rajiv Malhotra, now for quite some time, maybe 20 years. Um, first, I thought he was a crazy guy because he gave uh, a job at the top of a huge multinational, which is, was dealing with, uh, with, uh, with technical matters, and he resigned it at the age of 42, 43 and devoted himself to writing books about what the Indian must know in the United States. It shows exemplary courage. It showed also a total disregard for money because he gave up a huge salary to become, to do this on his own. And he never wavered. So such People are actually, are called Rishi Munis in our country. <laughs> who are people who can speak the truth, tell the truth, and to tell it in the United States. He's written about, this is his 10th book, all as big and heavy. If I were to go taking all the 10 books, then I, the airline will charge me some extra duty for taking it in. So it is great pleasure that today I will, I can't say that I've read every word of that book because I got it only a week ago. And I am, uh, Besides being interested in economics as a scholar, I'm also a person who appears on his own in the courts and argues my own cases. And uh, on top of that, I also engage in a lot of other activities like uh, uh, detective work and so on. So therefore, <laughs> therefore uh, I am I was short of time. But I've read and moved with Rajiv Malhotra for so long 
that I can fairly understand the, the framework in which he is presenting his latest book. The book is of 700 pages, 22 chapters, and a conclusion chapter plus two forewords also written by two scholars. I got uh, the, as I say, that uh, came to realize that the last two decades, Rajiv Malhotra has been spending time researching. He has a staff, he has associates. In fact, this book is, one of his associates is also a co-author. And the idea is basically to expose the conspiracy against India, to put it simply. There is a conspiracy against India. When the British were here, the conspiracy was, I could go further behind, but I can start with the British, because I'm speaking to you today in English. The British made it very specific. When Macaulay came, Macaulay went to Parliament and read out his minutes on education. The first thing he said is that Sanskrit should be wiped out. And he made a derogatory remark that one shelf of British literature is more and better than all the, the volumes of Sanskrit in, this, in India. Sanskrit was a medium of language. Sanskrit is, even today, in every Indian language. You can see Sanskrit in the script form also, Devanagari script, which Sanskrit uh, was the first one to bring out, and now many countries, many languages use Sanskrit. Marathi is written in Sanskrit, in Devanagari. Um, Nepal, Nepali is written in Devanagari. Gujarati is very similar. Um, Tamil also, the Sanskrit, uh, the, uh, the script of Tamil is very similar to the principles of the, uh, of Sanskrit uh, uh, lettering. So, Kerr is written in Devanagari like this. In Tamil also it's written like this. Key is done by putting a matra. In Tamil also you put matra. And you say ku, you put a matra under. In Tamil also you put that. So, it's a, it's a, the similarities is all there. And I don't know why this movement keeps coming up in Tamil Nadu that no Hindi. If Hindi, as the Constitution says, shall continue, continually go on increasing the use of Sanskrit, then uh, that, that would be constitutionally the correct procedure, which means that over a period of time, once you go on borrowing Sanskrit uh, Article 341 or something like that is in the constitution which says that Hindi is the official language of the government of India, but it shall be, it shall rely on Sanskrit 
vocabulary. So Hindi is now jettisoning all these extra, these, uh, these words which came from other languages, from say Arabia, from Persia, uh, and so on. So I am uh, mentioning this to you that when uh, Ra Raji Malhotra wrote a book on Sanskrit, people asked me why he's writing that. I said, that is the core. Macaulay said, wipe out and replace everything with English. I would say the first of all that, let me explain that uh, in his book, he has given four pillars on which the whole conspiracy stands. And one key takeaway, as he calls it, which is the foundation of the conspiracy. And in that he has developed it, he, he says that there are four pillars to this key takeaways. One is new, uh, the new Marxism based on a unity of black Americans and and uh, the Dalit community. Dalit community genetically is no different from the Brahmin community, or the Kshatriya community, or the Vaishya community, or the Shudra community. But 99% of the Indians have the same DNA, whether they are Brahmins, Kshatriyas, or not. None of these are actually birth-based. If you want to know whether it was birth-based or not, just go and read the Gita. This unity is being sought to be disrupted by this creation of a separate identity for the Dalits. And what we are seeing today in different places is that the division is being fostered, not so much by Indians but by foreigners. And in fact, in premier institutions like Harvard University. I, joined, I went to join the Department of Economics as a student for a PhD in 1962 at Harvard. I had two very famous teachers who actually doted on me because of the fact that I had demonstrated at an early age almost upon arrival, that I public, could publish papers in the toughest journals of economics, like Econometrica. And so both of them wanted me to do PhD with them, and ultimately I did it with Simon Kuznets, but I wrote a joint paper on the theory of index numbers with Paul Samuelson. These are great geniuses. When the Nepal Prize was instituted, one was first and got it first. Samuelson got it first and Simon Kuznets got his second. Samuelson was the father of mathematical economics, and Simon Kuznets was the father of GDP. He created the GDP, concept of GDP. So I was their student. I was taken into the faculty, and when I became uh, after I'd become associate professor, when I, they asked me whether I would take citizenship and be professor, I said, no, I want to go back to India. I came back to India, and all I met was hostility. 
Mrs. Gandhi saw to it that I was sacked from the IIT. Of course, it didn't matter because uh, 45 years later, I won the case and got my back salary, which is more than I would have got as a, if I had just retired. But I went through this difficulty because I expressed views which were, nobody could challenge me in economics. I was a mathematical economist, a statistician, and a student of uh, Paul Samuelson and Simon Kuznets, but they selected my view on Indian history. That there's no such thing as an Aryan and Dravidian race. We are one people, but that time we didn't have DNA, so I couldn't use that argument. So, um, this attempt to divide India with the increasing science exploding Aryan Dravidian theories, new theories have started coming up. And that is the wonderful work that uh, uh, Rajiv Malhotra has done. It's not an easy book to read but because it's technical, but he's identified the Harvard University as the, as the, what shall I say, sanctum sanctorum of all that is being done to debase India, divide India, uh, break up India, what he called as breaking India too. I had an unhappy end with Harvard. I taught from, uh, from 1963, I came in 62, Got my PhD in a year and I started teaching. I went back to India, then started coming every year. Sometimes I came and spent uh, one and a half years, uh, 85, 86, as visiting professor. Then from uh, 2000 to 2012, I came, went to Harvard to teach economics and mathematical economics for every year during the summer. When they, first of all, I was free from doing politics, and the university was very keen to have people who taught before at Harvard to come back during the summer when the other professors all go away for, for vacation. Suddenly one day, in 2012, I was informed that I was to come the following year to teach again. The Department of Economics has written a letter and that this is being processed. Do you agree? I said, yes, I agree, I'll come again. And then uh, after it was cleared and I was sent a, uh, the normal letter, I was told that when the, all the courses are finalized, the teachers are finalized, they're put together in a volume and sent to something called uh, a catalog committee, which decides the shape, size, front page picture of the catalog and nothing more. And that is a, a, a body to which no professor goes to attend, any self-respecting professors. So the anti-nationalist India people mostly from the Divinity School, the Center for Asia, where all the uh, people who, who are to be brought in and, and brainwashed, they are brought in. This is not part of the department. The Department of Economics is not a part of that. 
So all these various addendas, they have, uh, things that they, uh, Harvard has, to influence the world, the Kennedy School, they all together decided that the only way to stop Swami from coming to Harvard and spread his ideas, because I used to teach in class, and then on weekends I used to go and address the Indian students about the true nature of our history, uh, some of the things by which I, uh, which I learned from reading Rajiv Malhotra's books. So he's partly responsible for getting me out of Harvard. Uh, so this went on and on. And uh, what I mean is they, there was no difficulty. Harvard had known this. They had known me from 1970 uh, when I returned back to India. I joined the Jansang. I was uh, a flaming uh, Hindutva scholar at that time. Uh, all those, uh, those things I challenged uh, were actually new. Aryan challenging Aryan thing was a big thing. But this was never raised till what Rajiv Malhotra has identified is uh, what he calls as the walkism or something like that, which uh, in a minute, minute I will tell you what, uh, what, it is, what it means here. But since he has written extensively about Harvard, I want to support him on that because I have seen how it went. How did it go? First they meet and see that my case, uh, my court case, uh, my catalog doesn't include my course for the year. And why? Because in India I had written an article, an op-ed in a, a Bombay newspaper stating that, uh, you know, we Indians, Muslims and Hindus have the same DNA. So why can't the Muslims accept that uh, their ancestors are Hindus, which by DNA they are. And on that, they said that this was an offensive hate speech, and therefore my course catalog, the course catalog cannot include my courses. And consequently, I of course decided that I'm doing them a favor by going and teaching there. So I would rather spend then, uh, stop going abroad and stayed and uh, do politics more extensively in India. But this is Harvard. There was no reference to my, uh, no reference to my scholarly work. The Department of Economics filed a um, dissent note saying that he is the most wanted teacher. He has the highest uh, turnout in the summer school. We want him, and uh, he teaches two courses, one on China and the other is on mathematical economics. And we can't get a professor who has a PhD from Harvard to teach both courses. Either he can, they can teach mathematical economics or they can teach China, but uh, nobody else that we know uh, can teach both courses. So the Department of Economics was uh, you know, against it, yet school, divinity school, the India, India caucus thing, um, I think maybe one or two professors from the philosophy department, nothing to do with economics. They were able to block me and publicize the fact that because of his hate speech in India, in a newspaper, 
where he says that Hindus and Muslims have the same DNA, and therefore the Muslims should accept that, that their ancestors are Hindus. He says this is hate speech. And got the Congress party here in our country to get someone to go to some corner of Assam and file a hate speech case against me, for which I, a warrant was issued and so on. But of course, I know law and I can argue myself, but I had to fight it. And only six months ago, I won the case. The whole thing was quashed as absurd. <laughs> By the Assam High Court, and uh, none of these um, people had dared to go to the Supreme Court because they know that's my happy hunting ground and I'll make them, I'll do a lot of horrible things to them. So therefore, why did they do this? To say that either my way or the highway. That's the whole idea. You either conform or you are being declared as a pariah. This was the whole game plan of Harvard. It's not that Harvard doesn't have scholars, they do have scholars. But they are in uh, people who don't get into these matters at all. And they don't want to because at the moment they get in, they will be targeted too. Harvard Department of, uh, of Chemistry chairman has been arrested by the US government for being a spy for the Chinese. Can you believe an American being arrested for being a spy in Chinese, and that too from Harvard, and that too a chairman of the Department of, of Chemistry? So this, this penetration of Harvard has been facilitated by Indian plutocrats, Ratan Tata, XYZ, giving donations in such large numbers that they provide scholarships to American, white American scholars who will write about India and write against India. As if we, our Indians here, students, uh, you know, uh, have so much uh, uh, scholarships that they don't need any more scholarships. And these people also get tax advantages from our own government for having donated to these soft departments, as they are popularly called in Harvard, uh, for propagating things against India. Harvard then got a price for terminating my course. The promise that Sonia Gandhi made to Harvard, that they will give them a hundred acres of land north of Delhi to start a campus of Harvard University in India. Everything was cleared. File was only requiring the signature of the minister when the government changed and Smriti Irani became uh, the education minister. It was called, uh, what, um, Human Resources Department, something. And uh, she was, of course, a big fighter. Everything about her is not plus, but she's got lots of pluses. And uh, she asked me that I, the bureaucrats, as soon as I landed in the chair 
and sat down. The first file they gave me was this. This is pending. You must sign it. When I saw Harvard, I said, I better ask you. So she said, what do I do? I said, why do you need a Harvard campus? She said, you know, their professors will come, the students here won't have to go there, and so on. I said, nowadays there's something called EDX, by which you can attend a class at Harvard without having gone there at all through the computer. So why do you need these guys here? They, they will, then they will change your culture also. Whereas through the computer, they cannot change your culture. And you will also learn the subject you want. So cancel it. To her credit, she canceled it. And now that the, I won the case in court in uh, Assam High Court, I have now decided to sue Harvard. I don't have to go to America to sue it because they have got some office in Bombay. In Delhi, okay. I didn't know about Delhi, but uh, Delhi is even better. Again, this is where I live. <laughs> so I have uh, the, I've started the preparation. Uh, and uh, I've told Harvard that uh, I'll sue you unless you apologize. And uh, the salary I was supposed to get for the term that you canceled, uh, you have to give me that salary with the interest rates of 15%. <laughs> I was told by one very important dean of Harvard that if I don't publicize this, they will give it to me without going to court. I said, no, the game is and the fun is in the publicity, so that you never do it again. I'm not interested in the money. I sued Harvard at IIT, and I got uh, my, what, uh, um, uh, 40 years of back salary at 8% interest. If I had stayed at IIT and retired, I wouldn't have got so much money as I got this way. So naturally, my appetite has been whetted, so. <laughs> so what it, does this mean? See, I don't want to take away time from, uh, from uh, Rajiv Malhotra, because he has brought in some very important concepts, which I'll just refer to, and then I will conclude my, uh, my speech here. One is what he calls wokeism which the Chinese, uh, in their language, I speak Chinese, and it's very important that they, you, you know, the Chinese don't like anybody as a foreigner learning Chinese. They have a, they have a saying called Tian Pu Pa, Ti Pu Pa, Jo Pa Yang Wei Tsi, Hui Shou Jun Guo Ha, which means do not fear the foreigner, do not uh, fear the enemy, but do fear the foreigner who can speak Chinese. So it's, a, it's such a tough language that, uh, you know, if you learn it, that means you've got some ulterior motive. But in Chinese, Bai Zhou uh, means white uh, leftism, is what they call as wokeism. Wokeism is a concept which I'm sure that uh, Rajiv Minhitra will give you a more elaborate explanation. It's really essentially uh, a camouflage 
uh, or hate, revenge, resentment without reason. Most of all, Vogue is used by universities to demean, smear, um, mob anyone, mock anyone that dare to question the neo-Marxist ideology. So that is the danger today. There's no threat from Marxism, but there is a threat from neo-Marxism, which, uh, which needs to be uh, rebutted, exposed, and the book that has come out has done tremendous service for it. More books should be written after reading this book and uh, you know, take it forward. And I think the, our country today is, is not in such a danger as you might get the impression reading Molotra's book, because there is an awareness now. People speak, uh, when they talk about Hindutva, they may not talk about it being targeted against any other community. But there is a, a feeling of pride that our religion, the Hindu religion, which they are all trying to debase abroad, is a religion which is the most uh, democratic religion. Let us understand clearly our heritage. And this heritage should be learned, uh, it can't be taught in schools because our present curriculum is not up to it. But by reading books of people like um, uh, Rajiv Malhotra and others, you will be able to get a new viewpoint by which you can be a proud Indian. Thank you very much. Namaste. I'm honored to be here. I, this is my, I've been here many times given talks in this auditorium, thanks to the Center for Indic Studies at Indus University. I was involved at the very beginning when they were creating this center. And uh, Nagesh Bhandariji has been a great friend uh, and fellow traveler on this journey. I also want to thank Dr. Subramaniam Swami a great friend and fellow traveler as well. And we worked together on many areas and his uh, speech on uh, this book and Harvard in particular are outstanding examples of the resonance. I hope and fully support his decision to go and sue Harvard. <laughs> I think we have a lot of evidence in this book itself and a lot more. The big size of the book should not scare you. I'll tell you how you can read it in three or four hours. There is an introduction which summarizes the whole book. Then every chapter has a one-page overview. The one-page overview tells you what is the main thesis that we are arguing. What is the main point? bullet points sometimes, just summary, one page, maybe one and a half pages. If when you are done with that, you will know everything that the book is saying. For the evidence, you know, a lawyer makes a thesis and then he says, exhibit one proves this, exhibit two proves this, that's testimony, that's whatever evidence. The evidence is what's in the details. So if you are 
a lawyer who wants to argue a case, you need to read the evidence. If you are a scholar who wants to write a dissertation, you need to read the evidence. The Center for Indic Studies should read the evidence and develop courses on it, which we, would, we are thinking of doing together. But the average person who needs it as a war manual, how to be an intellectual Kshatriya, how to understand what is going on in the world better than media explains to you, better than reacting here, reacting there, but understanding the whole whole project, how the how to connect the dots, what is a deep thesis, what is a deep argument, what is a deep uh, uh, case against India that is called Breaking India 2.0. To understand all of that, you don't need to read each chapter in detail. So if you read the introduction and the overview of every one of those chapters, you will know what is in the book and that you can do in a few hours. After you've done that, you can go to any chapter by itself without reading cover to cover. You can, there is a chapter on attack on IITs, Harvard's attack on IITs. I'll discuss it in a moment. It's a chapter four, just go there, complete. The IITians have not responded. I'm responding on their behalf. Why have they not responded when the attack is so serious on them? And there are legal cases being filed in Silicon Valley based on that premise that IITs are a bastion of casteism and hence racism in the American system. And therefore all these Silicon Valley people who are from IITs and other engineering colleges, the tech people, they are bringing caste into America and racism into America and they should be prosecuted under American law. There are lawsuits right now. And so this has become a very serious matter. Uh, I will talk about this whole idea of, of mapping caste as racism. I'll just discuss it. Uh, but this, I'm just giving you an example of one chapter which will tell you what's going on and our, my response to it. Uh, people in uh, Harvard have written a whole book attacking IIT. It's called, it, it's name of the book is that. And it's written by Ajanta Subramanian, a young Indian uh, professor at Harvard, published by Harvard University Press. So you know you have the backing of the whole university and this and this is being spread because of Harvard brand name is being spread everywhere and it's bringing a bad name and legal problems for uh, Indian tech workers including a lobby that says the H-1B visa should be caste oriented, there should be quotas and there should be minority quotas and caste quotas even in H-1B and every American company that hires Indians in the United States or in India should do a caste census like the US requires race census. So you know you're going to be tagged if you're Indian by what caste and all that. Now of course our side is fighting back of course but this has become a very big thing. This is part of the wokeism. So if you want to understand the entire uh, you know attack on a IIT, IIT per hamla, you read one chapter that's it and that will tell you. So if you want to read what is Anand Mahindra doing He's an auto manufacturer. What is he doing in humanities and postmodernism at Harvard? He's funded something called the Mahindra Humanities Center at Harvard. And the director is one of the most famous and anti-India, anti-Hindu, well-known postmodernists who writes all these articles that India is a sham democracy and things of that kind. So if you want to know more about what is Mahindra doing, you don't have to read the whole book, you read one chapter. If you want to read about Lakshmi Mittal, there is something called Lakshmi Mittal and Family, South Asia Institute at Harvard, 
where all these kind of things happen about South Asia studies. And the strange thing is when these people are speaking in the back, the banner says Lakshmi Mittal South Asia studies. His family name is being implicated. His money and name are being implicated when all these things are going on. Whether he personally knows or not, we can't say. Maybe it's happening without him knowing, but he ought to know. And we are like auditors telling him something. So he, there's a separate chapter on that, on Lakshmi Mittal Center. So like this, the different chapters, if you want to know on China, the involvement of China at Harvard and through that in entering India, you can read the two chapters of that. So the book is divided in a way that you get an overview very quickly and then you can just stop there or go into one chapter here, there, whatever you feel like. I claim that this book will be as more important in the next 10 years than the first Breaking India was in the past 10 years in terms of how much it is revealing and how important these topics will become. And just like we have hundreds of channels, YouTube channels and monthans and all that, based on the previous Breaking India that are talking about all these things, about this whole Aryan theory and this caste divisiveness and this that the Dravidianism and foreign involvement and NGOs, all these cases against FCRA being blocked, we started all this movement. So now we are starting a new movement. The reason this is necessary is lack of awareness. We have achieved in the last dozen years emotional awakening, emotional awakening. So it's very important emotionally people are awakened. So I don't have the same credibility problem like I had that time. When I first came out with Breaking India, I was told by so many Hindu leaders that what are you doing, what are you doing, problem nahi hai. I mean, they did not understand that the discourse in the universities moves into think tanks, moves into the foreign governments and they make resolutions and foreign policies. It moves into media, the journalists are trained there. It comes to Indian academics, it comes to Indian parliament, it comes to Indian judiciary, it comes to Indian UPSC exams, it comes to NCRT syllabus. All of this discourse comes. They did not understand. Even my recent discussion with Arnab Goswami, where we meet, agree on most things. At the end, he's not sure why it matters, why we should worry about all this. We are so great. So to respond to that, because I think a lot of people are saying the same, wondering the same thing. You know, when Max Miller came up with the Aryan theory. It was also abandoned and ignored by our thinkers saying, who cares, he's an ignorant fellow. Just like he was telling me yesterday, uh, Arnab Goswami, that Harvard is ignorant, why should we worry about it? They're 10,000 miles away, what can they do? People said the same thing about Max Miller's Aryan invasion theory. Why should we worry what he says? We are, truth is in my heart, we are 5,000 years old, all this kind of stuff. Okay, but today, in Tamil Nadu, the whole politics is Dravidianism, which is based on Aryanism. If, as long as there is Aryan, there is Dravidian. They mirror images of each other, two sides of the coin. So, you can, you, so therefore, we are suffering. Uh, you know, this is the consequence of not taking the op opponent seriously. Another example is the caste system. Prior to Lord Risley, we had Varna Jati, but the collapse into the current hierarchical caste system, fixing it was done by Risley in the late 1800s and his mentors were all Oxford educated and they were, Oxford was in those days like Harvard is today. It was the central think tank of all these things. But our people didn't respond at that time. Our intellectuals didn't respond. 
They're supposed to have given a rejoinder, but nobody bothered, kya ho hai, chalo, chalne do. That was a problem. If you look more recently, when my first Breaking India book came out, I have so many letters and emails from our own Hindu leaders saying, ke mat kariye baat. So I, I, I introduced the term Hindu phobia because there is Islamophobia. And I was given this idea after a discussion with Professor Akbar Ahmed, a Pakistani uh, High Commissioner to England, who after retirement became a visiting professor at Princeton University. And since I lived there, we became friends. And he invited me one day to an, a book launch of some Islamophobia book. So I said, what is this Islamophobia? So he told me that we have to be very careful. We have to uh, respond to everybody who criticizes us. That is called Islamophobia. So then I said, but people are doing this to Hinduism. Uh, and then I thought, why don't we have Hinduphobia? We should talk about Hinduphobia. So I searched the internet. Islamophobia, I got lakhs of hits of people talking about it. Hinduphobia, zero hits. So even though the word Hinduphobia might have existed, somebody knew it in 100 years ago, but it was not in the popular discourse. Nobody was taking it seriously. So I started talking about Hinduphobia, wrote about it in 2005 in one of my books, and then continued talking. So it became a common word. So we have to, we cannot just ignore the threats. We cannot ignore the other side because we think that we know it all or uh, they don't count and so on and so forth. More recently, the book Battle for Sanskrit, which was launched here, as Nageshi said, basically exposed that not only is there distortion in the way Sanskrit is being taught in the Western world by people who are very fluent in Sanskrit, who come here, they're wearing tilak, they have dhotis, they are doing all kind of rituals, making it look like they're very, very much part of us. But what they are writing is actually rubbish and very dangerous for us. I, big book exposing that. Not only they are doing that, but they have convinced the Shingeri Mutt, the, the Gauri Shankar, the big administrator, Padamshiri Award winner, who is the administrator there. They've convinced him with an MOU to take over the representation of Adi Shankara in the United States as per their, their interpretation. This would kill us. This would have finished us off. And I had to go, that, that whole book tells the story of how I went, convinced the Shingeri Shankaracharya to put a stop on it, wait for my book to come out, let my book come out, read it, and then make a decision whether this is a good project or a dangerous project. And thanks to Bhagwan and thanks to Shiva, uh, the Shankaracharya decided no such thing will happen and that's how we prevented that from happening. So, you know, there is a price you pay, the examples I gave, there is a price you pay if you ignore these threats. And it's better to attack them right away when you... So this book is doing the same. Now, in, now let's talk about this book. This book is basically explaining how Marxism got Americanized in a very interesting way. And nobody thinks that this is Marxism, but it is actually a new avatar or a new, reinca new reincarnation of Marxism. And Marx had talked about oppressed and oppressor. That everybody, who, whoever is oppressed, there is somebody oppressor. And the job is to overthrow the oppressor. The oppressor made the discourse called hegemonic discourse, means the discourse that everybody has to read. And so now the oppressor, now the oppressed people, they have to counter it and make counter discourse. 
And so this whole idea started that you must silence the oppressor and only the oppressed can speak. And the oppressed is called special protected class. All these terms exist in wokeism. And this is called cancel culture in wokeism. That you cancel those you don't like. So if you don't like Dr. Swami, you don't like Rajiv Malhotra, you don't like certain people because of what they are saying, you cancel them because they are the oppressor. So this whole business of, uh, of fighting the oppressor in an unreasonable way without using liberal, the true liberal discourse, the true open speech, free speech, without using that, justifying it because they have to be toppled. This is a Marxist idea. But in Marx, it was only economic classes. It was not races. Marx did not say races, black versus white. He did not say religions. Marx did not say genders, that some genders are suppressed. Marx said economic classes. So this later became Marxism 2.0 during the Frankfurt School in, in Germany. And there they expanded the idea of uh, Marxism into something else. And now there is a 3.0 Marxism, which they don't want to admit is Marxism, but I explained in my book, this is Marxism. And this is critical race theory. The critical race theory where they mapped it onto blacks and whites and so on. Now, what does it have to do with India? It has to do with India because they mapped critical race theory to critical caste theory. So please remember, as it applies to India, it's called critical caste theory, critical minorities theory, critical LGBTQ theory. All these people who are supposed to be pichri jati, suppressed, oppressed, unke liye, unko upar uthane ke liye, you have to defeat India. You have to break up India, you have to break up Hindu dharma because that will liberate these people the same way the Marxists want to liberate through a revolution. So critical caste theory becoming critical, uh, critical, uh, critical race theory becoming critical caste theory, you must understand. So there is a whole book by one African-American who collaborated with the, these, uh, the Ambedkar people uh, in India. And uh, they gave her all this knowledge, but their idea, which is not accurate. Uh, and she wrote this book. She's a Pulitzer Prize winner, Oprah Book Club, New York Times number one bestseller, saying something as follows. The, the thesis says that caste is the origin of racism in America. Caste is the origin of racism in America because British came to India and they read all these old Shastras and they learned how to, how caste is working to divide society, how to oppress people, how to push them back. They learned it from the Brahmins. Then they came to America and they then learned how to oppress the blacks. So basically the Hindu Shastras and the Vedic theories of caste informed the racist white people on how to do this to the blacks. So they, they learned it. And then the Nazis learned it from the British, from American experience, and they took it to persecute the Jews. So this whole fascism also comes out of it. So therefore, when you read all this stuff that Hindus are fascist, Vedic origin is fascist, Brahmins are fascist, there is a whole theory and a whole discourse which has been developed to support that kind of point of view. So the theory says Dalits are like blacks of India and the non-Dalits are the whites of India. And caste is racism. Now this has become law. The, the, the state of California have said casteism is law is racism. Harvard has a policy that if there is any caste, if anybody, if anything is happening which is which refers to caste, it is to be used seen as race in the American context. Race is a very serious allegation. Uh, it's a criminal, a lot of criminal things. Uh, 
And so now what they are saying is that just like there is race census in big publicly held companies, the very giant companies are required to do a race census. And the HR department conducts, uh, uh, conducts courses on how to avoid racism. And they have an expert on racism in every big HR department who will then adjudicate if there is any issue or a complaint. So they are requiring that now it needs to be a caste expert in every HR department. And you have to do a caste expert, uh, uh, survey among Indian tech workers or Indian workers because they bring racism to America in the name of caste as caste. So this is a very serious issue. Now, I found that the problems coming out of this are sometimes US foreign policy says you got in social justice problem. And in India, they don't know what is going on, social justice problem. They're saying you don't have religious freedom is coming out of this. But our people haven't figured out where is it coming from. So Jay Shankar goes around firefighting. You know, like a firefighter who's got a fire extinguisher. But he has not figured out where is it coming from? What is the source? So if you have a if you have a tree which is giving you poisonous fruits, you should figure out your roots hang. What's the DNA in the roots? What is the tatwa? What is the where is the root, where is the poison being born? If you have a lot of samp bichu so you have to figure out where is the nest? Where are they being born, bred, nurtured, exported from there? So I decided that we should do research to find out where is it coming from? Where is all this poison coming from? You see article in Washington Post, you see article against India in New York Times, in Wall Street Journal, many of them authored by Indians only. But who are these snakes? Who trained them? Who trains all this kind of a media that is writing these kind of things? BBC part of it, Al Jazeera part of it. So we found that the headquarters, while during the British East India Company used to be Oxford from where it spread, it is now Harvard University from where it is spread. It, it is happening also in Stanford, in Brown University, Princeton University, various places. But there is nothing as big and prestigious and powerful as Harvard championing this thing. So this is surprise number two. Surprise number one is that there is a theory. What is a theory of this critical caste, uh, you, know, uh, you know, stuff, all of this uh, oppressed and oppressor, how to break up India. Theoretical, there is the first thing we explain in this book is what is the theoretical framework being used so that you recognize it. When you, read, when you come across some example, you will say, ah, I know what it is. I know why they are saying, where they are getting it from. And you can go dig deeper and get the backup also in the book. The second big surprise is that this is a systematic piece of work being done and it is done, the headquarters of this is Harvard University. It is the nest of snakes, Sambo Ka Ghosla. That is, we could have made another title like that also. Then the third surprise, Indian billionaires are funding it. Indian billionaires are funding it. It is not, Dekhi, I'll give you a secret, I'll tell you right now. Um, we have not exposed it before, but I would like to expose this. 90, we had a contract to write this, to publish this book with one of the biggest publishers in India. I don't want to name because they're my friends. 90 days before, 75 to 90 days before the book was supposed to be launched, and we had made plans many, many places to launch this book, publicity all out. They called me and said, you know, we can't publish it because it is naming all these very big names and it is bad for our business. It is bad, the gentleman said, it is bad for my business if I'm blacklisted by all these big billionaires and you're criticizing this and that. 
so we cannot publish this book unless you change and don't name them. So I said, if there is any inaccuracy, if there is anything we have said we can't substantiate, I will change it. So why don't you have a review? Uh, I'll give you 10 days, I'll hold everything, but 10 days you give me, you give me every place that you think we should change because it is something wrong. They came up with more than 1,000 places to change. Drop this name. Don't say Ananda Mahindra Center. Don't say Lakshmi Mittal Center. Just say some group somewhere. I said, but that is what it is called. On their website, it is called Mahindra Humanity Center. This is their logo. This is their building. I have a photograph of it. We have, we have photographs. We have videos of their people speaking. Why, why should we not name them when they are naming it? They are very proud of what they are doing. And I'm not blaming them. I'm not saying that the Indian industrialists are snakes. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that in their name, in their name and with their money and associated with their centers, there are other snakes being created and encouraged. So in a sense, they are feeding the snakes. Maybe they don't know what they're doing. But we can't stop naming them. We have to say it. They might come back to me and say, Rajiv, thank you for telling me this, but it's my money. I'll do what I want. I believe in all this. I believe in wokeism. I believe that that is what's going to help India. Please go away. Fine. I can't stop it. I'll say fine. Thank you. I've told. I've given my position. I've exposed what is going on with your name. If you like it, continue. They might say that, and it's fine. I have no problem. I don't intend to uh, push it further. Or they might say, "Thank you very much, telling me I didn't know this, and now I know." So what I say is like, they hire financial auditors, they hire Ernst and & Young and Deloitte and & Touche and Pricewaterhouse and whatnot, all these people, to give them an audit of what may be wrong in their company. Not that the auditor wants to harm you, but he's telling you so that you know and then you can solve the problems. So we are a civilizational audit. We are doing a civilizational audit about their philanthropy. Whatever they're doing as philanthropists, we are giving an audit saying what is good or bad for the country. And not everything is bad, by the way. Harvard has got a lot of great things. Harvard is great in science, mathematics, engineering, medicine. It's very good for STEM education. But when it comes to humanities and social sciences applied to India and social justice issues, human rights issues, gender studies issues, minority issues, you know, they're supporting Khalistanis, they're supporting Kashmir separatists, they're supporting Rohingyas, they're supporting all kinds of things that have anybody who has a problem with the Indian state and the Indian civilization, they're supporting those people. So it is okay for people like me to expose this. What's wrong? Harvard is supposed to be the center of free thinking. So we can also, as free thinkers, tell this. And they, they have canceled us, but we can write a book. Then there are people who say, why didn't you go and tell the Indian billionaires privately? Okay, two reasons. More than 10 years ago, Mr. Guru Murthy, when he heard my talks, even 10 years ago I was saying all these things, he said, I want you to go and explain this to Anand Mahindra in Bombay. He's a very reasonable man. He has not yet invested in Harvard. He's thinking about it. You go and warn him. I went to Bombay and I sat in his office. He served me a very nice lunch. He's a very nice gentleman, very calm, gentle, decent human being. And he heard me and I left a hard copy of my PowerPoint slides to him. I said, please evaluate it. And I, if I were you, I would not go funding it. So he knows my position. Now, I could easily say, why didn't they tell me if they are going to do it? Because they know I'm an expert. I've been chasing Harvard for 30 years, and I'm a, I'm a scholar of what all they are do up to. 
So why didn't they, they uh, instead of me approaching them, I already approached them. They could have approached me before doing all this, but they didn't. So therefore, it's okay for me to go public and write, it, write a book on it. Why not? So and similarly, I went and met Ajay Piramal and in the Piramal Towers twice. Twice I met him, many years back. And I said the same thing that this is what's going on, the narrative of India is being spoiled, these are the people doing it, this is what's wrong about it, this is what the examples of what they are saying, this is how it causes harm, it, it comes to India, it comes to these Indian universities, then it spread up from here, it teaches our wrong things to people in the media and therefore we should go not fund those people. But he funded it, there is a Piramal Center in Harvard. So I am quite clear that I had to do this publicly because nothing else worked, nobody else listened. I'm also very clear, my intentions are very good. I have no ill will towards these billionaires. I wish them well, they're good for India, they're creating jobs and I, I have more power to them. I want them to be successful. But when it comes to the portrayal of India in a foreign country, I have invested my whole life and I'm an expert on that and I have a right to speak and I will speak whether these guys like it or not and I hope they take it fairly. So now the question is, have we considered Harvard as a Vishwaguru? We keep saying, hum Vishwaguru hai. it's nice to have slogans and nice to have you know, wishful thinking. That's wishful thinking. But if our own discourse is being determined there and that discourse is coming here and even our Supreme Court justice quoting wokeism. Uh, we have a YouTube video which my co-author put out and several uh, tweets with little two, two minute videos. You can go to at Rajiv message, Rajiv message and follow me on Twitter and you will see we put up these uh, videos showing Justice Chandrachut quoting the very same people at Harvard, naming them and these people at Harvard are writing this, he's quoting it and these are the people on which we have written one month chapters. We've written a whole chapter five on Suraj Yengde at Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, who is the poster boy for this Afro-Dalit project. Young man, very charismatic, very intelligent, bright, but you know, he's on their side. So, we have read, uh, so like that we have several separate, separate chapters on different people who are doing like dangerous work for our country. They have a right to do it because it's free speech. They have a right and we have a right to criticize them. So, we are doing all of this quite openly and just want, you know, people to sort of know about it. Now I'll tell you a few things that are happening in India as a result of this because people should not think what happens at Harvard stays at Harvard. It doesn't stay at Harvard. It's so powerful, it's like almost an empire. It goes all over the world. They're training the leaders, political leaders, they're training the think tanks, they're training, they have Newman Center which trains the journalists, uh, you know, all over the world. So when you see why people in various media are writing all this because they've been trained, uh, they are now training the children of the our industrialists. You know, Harvard, $70,000 a year tuition is not cheap. So the elite send their kids there and these, these people do very well. They have established a, a lot of influence in India. While the national education policy has many good things, I never criticizing something as being totally bad or totally, or find it totally good. There are good things and bad things. While there are many good things also, the problem is that the NEP 2020 is promoting liberal arts 
and this liberal arts which is being promoted is the Harvard liberal arts. It is not Vedic liberal arts. It is not the 64 kalas. It is not the Arthashastras and Dharmashastras and what is the ethics from Mahabharata and all that. It is the social science, the, the humanities model of India, the caste model of India, the minority criticism, the gender studies, all these studies, different kinds. It is that idea of liberal arts by professors at those foreign places, Harvard being the biggest one, which has been brought into India and which is now going to IITs, it's going to IIMs. So we are going to spread that poison by inviting those snakes because the NEP policy says so. Another part of the NEC, NEP policy is, you see uh, Harvard and various American uh, think tanks and corporate people also have been doing a lot of data gathering in India which is very useful for uh, artificial intelligence, for big data, for machine learning. They have been gathering a lot of data which is very sensitive for manipulating politics, making people vote a certain way. You need to know their profile, what they like, what they don't like. Then you can make them vote a certain way, buy certain products, convert their religion, make them violent and fight each other. That is why social media often gets banned and blocked because there's a, when there's some unrest, they block it. The governments block it because social media is used to incite people. And the way it can incite people is by knowing the profile of every individual. So these foreign entities have been doing data mining. A lot of them in the name of public health are mining genetic data in India. A lot of them are mining data on the, you know, all the elections in the villages, the panchayats, uh, you know, what is this caste composition, religious composition in every district, every village. These people are mining it like crazy and we have allowed it. Nobody here is stopping it. Now previously, places like Harvard would send their money here to get this work done. But what has happened is now they, they've set up Indian establishments which are tax exempt from the Indian government. So you can give in rupee donation to them get tax write-off, which means the Indian taxpayer is subsidizing it and that money is used to do research in India for them. So we are, the taxpayer is, sponsor, is subsidizing and funding places like Harvard to set up think tanks to do research on us, which helps them become more powerful in managing us. This is so stupid and this has been allowed. So you know, I'm, I'm not uh, uh, opposed to criticizing whoever it is, I don't care. Ashoka University is one of the, is proud to be the Harvard of India. So they brought all these ideas into India. Uh, elite people in India uh, send their kids to, they pay 10, 12 lakhs a year. So it is not for poor Ahmadmi. So the elites are being wokeized. Woke they are being turned into woke. It is not just for the grassroots level people, this is for people at the top level. IAS officers, are going, are, there are programs in the Indian government, they go to Kennedy school and take courses and they learn all this stuff and come back with the Harvard Thappa and they're considered very important. There are people in the, in the, in, the, in, in Harvard's Mittal, Mittal, in social, uh, Mittal Institute of, uh, uh, you know, South Asia. There are people like that uh, there who are serving in committees in Niti Aayog. Niti Aayog has some people like that serving such committee. The Indian, there are Indian ministries that are making policies where the policy, the policy makers are, policies are quoting the Harvard policies on India. Harvard is becoming like the policy think tank on India. You see, philanthropy has two parts. If you are doing philanthropy, the good part is when you are offering services. Khana de rahe hain, 
clothing, housing, medical aid, education. You're providing services. That's very good. Traditionally, Indians did that. But what the Westerners want Indians to invest in is policy making, political activism. That is where you divide through policy. You come up with a policy on you know, minorities. How about making policy on minorities? What is their business? Why, why are they? Why are we listening to them? So you see the, the invasion of India through this, uh, this thing is very uh, widespread. I haven't in this trip gone to Mumbai because we ran out of time. We'll go coming back in February and we'll go to Mumbai. And I want to face all the industrialists, bring them together and talk about it, all these things. One of the most fashionable things in corporate India, because they've copied it from World Economic Forum, and World Economic Forum got this idea from Harvard Kennedy School and Harvard Business School. This is called ESG, Environment, Social Justice, Governance. So every company is now got ESG officer. And this ESG officer is supposed to promote environmentalism, social justice, governance. My problem is with the S, social justice. So what are they doing to promote social justice? Whose idea of social justice? This is not an Indian Vedic idea of social justice. This is the idea of Harvard of so on social justice, which they are implementing. And this is exactly this business about casteism and so on, and minorityism and quotas. So now it's entering the corporate world. It's entering the corporate world. Because if your ESG score is good, then the foreign investment is better for you. Foreign investment is being linked to good ESG score. And who decides the ESG score? It's people like McKinsey, Deloitte and Touche, Arthur, you know, these kind of people, the five or six major American uh, consulting houses who are making a killing on this. So first they come and say, we will do an ESG audit of your company, Mr. Mahindra. We'll do an ESG audit to make sure your, your ranking is good. And, and then you'll be doing well, you'll get a foreign investment, and we'll be doing it for you, Mr. Mittal, and for Mr. Piramal, and for Mr. Bajaj, and for Mr. Tata. So they are invited and they do all these reviews and they charge millions of dollars and they, they tell you that this is how you improve your ESG rating. So these people listen. So this ESG rating opens the gate for wokeism to come in the name of social justice. This is an original point we are making in this book. There are many original points. The entry of wokeism into the corporate world through ESG is a very big point we made in this book and we explained it in great detail. And that social justice uh, uh, part of ESG is further expanded into a movement called DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. Means you have to have diversity of people, which of course we are like, we Indians already have it. Equity means you have to be equal equity. Inclusion means of course include karo. But this is not some American idea. When the Americans bring it with their training, with all of this bokeism lens, it's to divide people. It's to talk about oppressor and oppressed in the corporate world. You have oppressed people in your corporate world. And there are oppressors in your corporate world. And the oppressed should overthrow the oppressors. Then there's another movement from the United States linked to the World Economic Forum. And that is called Religious Freedom in Business. There is a foundation for religious freedom in business. Now guess what? When I wrote my artificial intelligence book, some people invited me to be a member of the board of something called AI and Faith, 
artificial intelligence and faith. So I said, this is very interesting. They, they, have, they have Christians, they have Jews, they have Muslims, they have all these people. And I criticize that the artificial intelligence algorithms have a problem with Hinduism because they're biased, they have a bias against Hinduism. I've given a lot of examples. So to, to kind of keep me quiet or maybe buy me out or hush it or whatever, they invited me to be on their board. So I became the Hindu member on their board, or board of advisors. So I, found, I wrote some articles, they published my articles. And I thought, okay, I will influence them. Then I found out that the parent, the organization that is the real BAP, Mahabap, is called the Foundation for Religious Freedom in Business. So I said, this is very interesting. Who is running it? The person who is running it was head of uh, the same fellow in the US Commission on International Religious Freedom that told the US Congress that India does not have religious freedom. India is persecuting Christians and Muslims and Dalits and Rohingyas and all that. All of that nonsense that India has to deal with is his organization, government funded, was doing it. And now he started this organization to enter corporate. So in his website, he called me, he was very happy that a Hindu has joined. He thought I'll be on his side and he needs a Hindu to make look good. So I learned a lot. I put three of my people as interns, as volunteers, as scholars. He said, we're looking for scholars. I put three of my people into his organization to find out what they're up to. What exactly are they doing? And we found all the stuff, what they're doing, they're mapping, they're keeping track, they're making a map of who's who, how Hinduism works, how, does, how are they making decisions, what are the bodies and organizations and paramparas, how to influence, you know, all of that. And so this, this is another uh, entry into India, the corporate side. So you have the ESG entry, the DEI entry, the religious freedom entry and many others. So you see, when you look at the invasion of India, I haven't even talked about Omidyar network. Omidyar network in the south is very big and a huge problem. I haven't talked about Ambedkar versus wokeism. Ambedkar was not wokeist. Ambedkar was not wokeist. And these people who are wokeists in the name of Ambedkar, they have distorted many of his ideas. So I'll go on, but I think time is running out. I would like to uh, suggest that uh, people who get copy of this book and uh, should read and at least one chapter write a review. That's all I expect because once you write, once you get hooked to it, you will realize that in a matter of weeks or months you'll want to read an another chapter or you'll come across some uh, uh, problem in the world and this book will tell you how to think about it, how to give an answer. So I would, that's what I would uh, like to suggest and, and in closing I want to thank uh, Dr. Bhandari and uh, Mrs. Bhandari for organizing this and Indus University and my dear friend Ram Sharma uh, who is the head of the Center for uh, Indic Civilization uh, and uh, also Dr. Swami, my dear friend for gracing this occasion. I work very hard. This is all I do. This with my tan, man, dhan, this is all I do and it's for people like you to support me. Thank you. My question is to uh, Dr. Rajiv uh, Malhotra. Uh, sir, in your book you have mentioned a few um, material conditions on the ground that causes the antithesis to arise and uh, the thesis to clash. So, can you elaborate a bit on that? Yes. Uh, in Marxism, there is this theory that what is the narrative running the world is called thesis. 
and we, we have to create antithesis to topple it. That is the idea. And the antithesis, which will be against society's structures, because the society's structures are bad for the people who are oppressed, narrative family Now, the Marxists did not talk about breaking family and did not talk about religion, breaking the, each, making religions fight each other. They were against all the religions equally. They were not supporting some religions. But now, the Marxism has been adapted in such a way that they want to break family. This is very clear. Suraj Yengde from Harvard Kennedy School has given seminars where he says we have to break the Indian family system as an enemy of the Dalits. This kind of strange logic he has. So the, the different forces that have to come together to create this antithesis. Uh, in the case of India, they are bringing together uh, Dalits, minority religion people, all, all the Muslims, Rohingyas, all these kind of people, and LGBTQ people, uh, feminists, uh, ultra left-wing Maoists, these kind of people. Anyone, uh, they can create a group identity and tell them that uh, India is your enemy. They want to facilitate. Now, the interesting thing is, French President Macron gave a very strong rebuttal to wokeism. He said, this American th disease we don't want. He said that in France, the idea of freedom and, lib and liberalism and justice uh, is equal rights to individuals, not group identity. So there is no such thing as a Muslim group identity that will get rights which are unique from other people, different from other people. Every Muslim as an individual will have equal rights as everybody else in this country. So our system is individual level of rights, not collective that your group is different from those groups. So he attacked the problem at the very root because this problem is basically, you know, in India it becomes vote banks. But the problem is that you create many, many kinds of groups who are hostile to the nation because you tell them that they are victims. So idea of this antithesis is to make India into a nation of victim identities. And then to tell every victim identity, this is your history, this is how they did it to you, to your forefathers. And the structures are the ancient structures of India, which means Vedic structures. And the modern structures that are illegal in the constitution, because the constitution itself is considered illegal by many of these people. And many of these people have started phrases like, uh, Brahmins are criminals. Brahmins should be persecuted. So uh, this is coming out of Harvard. We've given full quotation from here. So that is what the antithesis is trying to achieve. Thank you. So my question is to Radhi sir, like why have you chosen snakes in the Ganga as your title? Like for your first publish, uh, which was on 2011. Uh, 11, breaking India 1.0. So it's like completely different, snakes in the Ganga. Like why have you chosen such a title? So first of all, I wanted people to see something different. So they'll notice it and not because a lot of times when I said to people that the whole game has changed, I want to expose it. People would come and they will talk about the same problems. They would talk about that you know, Davidianism hai and Aryanism hai and Christian missionaries. Hai. You see the big difference between uh, Breaking India 1.0 and 1.2. I have a table here, Breaking India 1.0, 1.2. Breaking India 1.0 was targeting mischief at the grassroots level among poor people in the villages trying to convert them. 
they were not going after the corporate elite, they were not going after the big think tanks, they were not going after people in government. Now Breaking India 2.0 is going after the elites of India, the people at the top of the power structure and therefore Harvard is very important because these people look at Harvard as the Vishwaguru, for the elites is the Vishwaguru. So the Harvard saying something carries a lot of weight, the villager won't know what is Harvard, why we should care, villager won't know. But the Harvard, he will care more this local missionary who is giving me food, that is what he will care. But to, if you want to brainwash and create bhed and create anti-India feelings among the elites of India, people in the judiciary, people sitting in the, some of them in the government, they, how they do it, they bring in western consultants and western consultants come up with policies. These policies look very sophisticated, very beautifully done with a lot of statistics and pie charts and diagrams and all that, but these are all bringing in their ideas of social justice. So this, I wanted to come up with a different name. So snakes in the Ganga is a metaphor. When you are in the Ganga, you don't expect a danger. It's a safe place, sacred place. So snakes, snakes ki kya baat hai? Sab log jo hamare paas hai, aas paas hai, they are good people, they are pious people. But the idea is to tell them that there are some snakes hidden under the surface and these are poisonous, so you have to be careful. So snakes in the Ganga says, in, an, in a space that you consider safe and fine and good and normal, like you know, like uh, you are sending your kid to some university and you are feeling and like you are this whole idea of, uh, of the Indian government, you feel that Niti Aayog must be pro-India and I am saying yes, they are very pro-India, they are trying to be pro-India, intentions may be good but there are some snakes in there because those snakes have come in and they are helping them make policy, this is dangerous. So corporate India same way, unki philanthropy leke ja rahe, they are taking tens of millions of dollars. Lakshmi Mittal gave 50 million dollars to start his center and then further on more people join in like that for all these billionaires. So they are basically not aware because it is a very nice safe place and the purpose of the book is to say where you don't expect danger, there is danger. Uh, the critical race, the term critical race theory and woke is how should we as students should approach to these theories? What should we, uh, how should we approach to the, uh, this type of theories? I have figured out the bottom line of what is happening in America, breaking America through this wokeism. And so I'm getting a lot of support from anti-wokeists in America, in Britain, in France, in Germany, in Hungary. In fact, in January, we are planning a trip to Europe to launch this book. All these Western people, because they're very concerned that this is happening in their country. Italy just uh, elected a person who's totally anti-wokeist. So you see, this wokeism, has unified the global left, but there is no unified global right. I don't like left-right term, by the way, I just don't. But people who call themselves rights, let's just say anti-wokes, okay? The anti-wokes are, are divided because the anti-wokes in America are very strong. They've made a new university to fight Harvard. It's called University of Austin. 
And the gentleman who's one of the faculty founders is the one who wrote this foreword in, in this book. And I've just loaded a, on YouTube, if you go to my YouTube channel, Rajiv Malhotra Official, I've just, uh, we uploaded two days ago, a long interview with him, one hour long. He's very excited, very impressed. He says that this book is going to change the course of civilization. That is his endorsement. And so, w white Americans and liberals are also fed up and disgusted that many of their people have sold out to wokeism. So, you know, we are, I'm building strategic allies. I'm building alliances with people in other countries, not just fighting it as a Hindu, but I'm fighting it on the cause of, I'm saying like they're dismantling our, this, they had this dismantling Hindutva conference and people raised issues and fought against it. But nobody said what is the cause, who is the, where is it coming from? They all picked on some junior person called Audrey Truske, who's just a useless, kind of a very low level, low ranking person, uh, who's just the sepoy fighting in front. But who's behind it? Are all these senior people in very prestigious places? Nobody looked into that. So we are doing that because that was not done when they were fighting against, uh, you know, Hindutva, uh, the breaking Hindutva conference. So we are allying ourselves with people of other civilizations who feel that their civilization is also being dismantled. Now China kicked out wokeism. They, they have no problem because any, they discontinued the American liberal arts coming to China. They discontinued. They had many American universities. They said, you bring us technology, bring us physics, science, metallurgy, uh, aeronautics. Uh, you bring us all of that. We need, we need American technology. Uh, we, they will learn, send students to learn and bring back. Uh, uh, but they don't want uh, liberal arts and wokeism. They don't want that. The difference, one big difference between Chinese students in US and Indian students is, Chinese students you'll never find go, going there to study Chinese history, Chinese political thought, what is wrong with Tibet, what is wrong with Uyghur Muslims, what is wrong with political policy. Chinese don't send students to study what is wrong with China. They don't do that. Whereas we are very fond of doing that because we feel that if we kill people, We really have that inferiority complex. So I'm just trying to shake up these billionaires. If you were to ask me what is the one thing we can do as a country, the one thing we can do is if three billionaires would stand up to Harvard, we can change Harvard because they cannot, they are, they are, they'll be so embarrassed if the three, three of them would say, we're backing out of Harvard very publicly because you're anti-India and Hindu-phobic. If the three of them would have the courage to say it publicly, Harvard will change because Harvard will beg them, please mat chao, hum change karne ko tayar hai. That's the level. So you see, our billionaires don't know the power they have. They're still worrying about that we will think, wow, kya baat hai. They're still waiting for, they're still waiting for endorsement and thappa from the white guy. I mean, this is colonial mentality. This is like slave mentality. So they've made billions of dollars. India mein to unko bhagwan samajhti hai. But they still want to be at the seat of the table with the highest ranking white people so they can be feel like we are honorary whites. That is kind of the inferiority complex that many of these people have. I'm not naming anybody, but I, this is my supposition, just a hypothesis, that if we can change them, it will change. If we can change Indian government policy, on, uh, Indian government policy thinks that uh, uh, Harvard Kennedy School of Government and all these affiliated uh, consulting companies are the king. 
they come and make all kind of policies. It's a, you know how much policies made by the American think tanks in this country. Uh, they, we, we are not looking at whether this is good for the average Indian. And India should bring Indian consultants. And we should bring consultants from the grassroots, from all segments of society. If you want to have inclusion and diversity, then the consulting think tanks should be people of all kinds, right here in India. So what we can do about it is first you have to be very, you have to be, before you can cure a disease, you have to do a diagnostic. If the diagnostic is still breaking India 1.0, which I keep telling my friend, all the things that have been going on, all these guys, they're basically on breaking India 1.0. Our YouTube, they're still stuck on the same thing which we talked 11-12 years ago. Breaking India 2.0 is a new level. And only when you understand your diagnostic will change. And when your diagnostic will change, then you can stand up and give an answer. So that's what young people like you, you should do. Uh, so many Indian billionaires are investing in Harvard University. So, so sir, why they are not investing in our Indian universities, sir? So, so this is a very good question. Why aren't they investing in Indian universities? Because Indian universities may kehenge ki thappani milega, upar There are several causes. One could be they get their kids in Harvard. You give some money, you get kids in Harvard, maybe. So one other reason is it could be good for business. Because if you're sitting on some committee or some board of philanthropists, you'll be rubbing shoulders with Bill Gates, you'll be rubbing shoulders with all the rich elite from here and there. And so you can cut business deal. It's like a networking opportunity of the billionaires of the world. You go, this is like an entrance. You pay 10 million, 50 million dollars, you are in the club. It's the senior most club in the world where the entry fee is very high. And so if you can afford it, you get that. You go on a private jet with some guy, you know, uh, to his island and you have a good time there and you are rubbing shoulders with these people. You feel very, maybe I have you know, After all, if I got so many billions of dollars to India, India we are big shots. But now we have to go to the international level and get recognition. So we have and we have to demand that, look, we like you, we are good people, but at the same time, you have to be loyal to our civilization and our culture. Any one of them could have set up an Indian university with Vedic liberal arts, not Ashoka University bringing Harvard liberal arts, but an Indian university with Indian values and research and education, media training, any of them could uh, you know put in a huge amount of money and do that also they could put money on a media uh, like al jazeera why don't we have an indian al jazeera why don't we have an india indian equivalent of bbc or fox channel those are the channels that represent different civilizations the fox channel represents the the right wing america the cnn represents the left wing america the bbc represents britain al jazeera represents the muslim world we don't have a channel of that kind i was telling this to uh, arnab uh, that, uh, you know, Republic may be great and all, but it's all Indian stuff. You, know, you don't have a global presence. Nobody in the world takes you seriously as the voice of India or the voice of uh, you know, the way we take uh, other channels. So we have not invested in world-class liberal arts university and we have not invested in world-class Indian media channels. In fact, we have allowed the American social media to come and invade us. The Chinese, at least, they blocked the Google and the Facebook and, all, and the, all these people to make their own platforms. And they have their own platforms. We don't have any platform here in India which is of stature, which is of substance. So I think the billionaires have put their money in the wrong place when it comes to civilization. 
as you already talked about your, in your address as well as in uh, some of the question answering, uh, so it's been long year, means 11 years through the launching of the Breaking India 1.0. So sir, what all changes the society has adapted and how did you react to such changes or responded to it sir? I just want you to throw some light on that part. Thank you very much. So how has society reacted to the first Breaking India book 11 years ago? Very good question. I think there are hundreds of YouTube channels basically taking the ideas of Breaking India but not necessarily acknowledging it or mentioning it. Pere pere teen char saal people had a lot of excitement. They would all say, hum Breaking India ke baare mein baat karte and they would put my book up and like that. But then after that, you know, the ego says ki why do I need to mention mera apne ho gaya. So a lot of channels have started that are basically taking the same ideas and spinning them as their own. Okay. And this is one influence. And also the government acted these laws on FCRA, FCRA laws, <coughs> banning some of these NGOs. We proposed that. We did so many conferences in Delhi based on that book. We did conferences to expose what the NGOs are doing, why they should be stopped. And so action has happened in many ways. It's good action. We would just like to see more action. And spread, it has spread and now, you know, now people don't blame me for saying these things. Our people don't blame me. Of course, the op oppos opponents always blame me. But our people like what I, I'm saying. Whereas at that time, people, our own people, you know, I had difficulty getting into uh, Hindu temples in America to give a talk because they would say controversy. Mm -hmm. The biggest temples in New Jersey banned me. The big, uh, Chinmay mission would not want me. Uh, you know, these Ramakrishna mission people, the ch big temple in Chicago, they wouldn't want me. Because they said, Ki hum to, uh, we will talk about Advait and we'll talk about, I am Advaitin, so I know. But you have to put Advait in action. You have to see Mahabharat. You have to see what Guru, what uh, Sri Krishna is saying. You have to go and act in the, in the Kurukshetra. So that doesn't mean that you have to just sit quietly out of it. So I faced all that. I faced uh, cancellation from our temples. I was cancelled cultured from our temples. I'm still cancelled cultured from a lot of Hindu manthans that won't call me. And from a lot of YouTube channels who learnt our stuff but they don't want to uh, invite me. So that problem is an ego problem. When people talk about Hindu ecosystem, they should think about the Hindu ecosystem. Uh, sir, my question is only single question is that, uh, is uh, Howard only uh, university or any other universities are doing anti-India? Many universities. Hamare paas itna masala hai ki I could write 10 more books, but then he will say ki extra weight ho jayega. <laughs> I'll give you an example. Well, I, I, rather than example, I'll just tell you. Ye Brown University, mein ho hai, Princeton University, mein ho hai, Columbia University, mein ho hai, Stanford University, mein ho hai, MIT. MIT, mein ha, ek example diya humne. Uh, MIT hai, there is something called J Pal. J is an Arab name, Arab Sheikh name, Jamil. <coughs> PAL stands for Poverty Action Lab. Now you wonder, MIT you think of technology lying. That's what you think. MIT will bring some technology to India. But MIT's JPAL is funded by Saudis to solve poverty in India. Now you wonder what the hell they are doing to solve poverty in India. And they have tied up with universities in the south. Kriya and Azim Premji, these kind of universities have tied up with them. 
and there is JPAL tie-up with these Indian universities, and they are doing so much research on, you know, Dalit ke against ye ho hai, Muslim ke against ye ho hai, minority ke against ye ho hai, poverty ka kya cause hai, ye kya Brahmin kar rahe hai, who is doing all this. So this, this kind of same like what Harvard they are doing out of MIT also, and this this kind of problem is happening in more in many American universities. The liberal arts are full of this, and this has become a very fashionable thing in India to invite those people and have tie-up. I have a question uh, related to international university ranking. Uh, Times higher ranking, QS ranking, they all are uh, based on the principles laid down by the same, Harvard and others. So uh, is the same reason uh, stopping Indian universities to go in the top 200 ranking or so? So, you know, the question of Indian rankings, first of all, I think our needs are different. Our needs are different. In, uh, in India, Nehru made a decision, very big error in my part, in my opinion, to keep research centers separate from teaching centers. So all these research labs, all these think tanks for different economic policy, all these, uh, you know, physics, national physical laboratory, these lot of these labs were only for research and universities were only for teaching. Whereas in the United States, one of the ways you, a university gets good ranking is how much research is produced. So you see, if the Indian uh, research labs were affiliated with universities or part of universities, then all that research done would be credit to the university ranking. So this is a mistake that we made. The benefit the American system has is, when I went as a student of computer science, you know, I was working on my, my professor, they get grants from the government and various places and they bring students involved. So you learn research, cutting edge research. So he had a grant from the Pentagon, the military. So I even, even on a student visa, foreign, I had to get special security clearance, but I could go with him to the Pentagon, attend meetings and make it part of my research. So I have a learning thing very practical. Here book knowledge. The reason, the reason you have book knowledge in, in education is because those professors are not doing research. Whereas in the United States, the same professor who is teaching a class is also doing research. So he's publishing papers and he's, you know, he's measured on that. I think this research focus in universities has helped the U.S. create a research culture. So the teacher also, besides teaching you, his job is also to teach you how to do original work, how to write, how to do citations, the karna hai and all that. So that by the time you graduate, you find that people who graduate from American universities, they are good at research and good at writing and all those things, which they have been taught. So the, our people are more like memorized knowledge, that is a serious problem that our HRD ministry has not addressed, which would be unifying the research centers and the education centers. And this will help both the research, because you'll get young students involved with good ideas, and it will have education, because their education will become more, more positive, more practical and futuristic for the sake of the country. Thank you, sir. Hello. My name is Shonak. Uh, I represent the architecture department. Uh, while we are listening to many rich people funding NT India uh, discourse, I think I would like to congratulate Indus for having this discourse where you know we are kind of rebuttaling to what the narrative is getting said. So congratulations to all of us and the Indus as a family.
sir, I was researching and I was watching certain videos where on YouTube and I was uh, you were I think in IIT Chennai and you made a remark that uh, the FCRA when the norms are becoming extremely stricter now, uh, a lot of money is coming in 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 terms of FDA. And India really needs FDA. That's that's the comment that you made on that dais. So, uh, uh, Dr. Swami is also here, and you are also on dais. So, uh, can India really tackle uh, the inflow of FDA and you know channelize it in certain manner that it's not used for data mining, maybe or maybe uh, discourse settling uh, processes? So. The, he's asked a very important question I did not touch on because, you know, that requires a lot of explanation. You read this chapter on Omidyar and read the, the before that a chapter on data mining and data, you know, archiving and all that. Uh, but to give you all an idea of what the issue is, uh, Breaking India 1.0 mentioned that FCRA is being misused to bring NGO money uh, and this is being doing, doing social harm. Now, Breaking India 2 points out, this is another original thing, this has not been mentioned, uh, you know, by anybody, we are bringing it out. Breaking India 2 mentions, says that now money is being brought through FDI. FDI is to bring investment money and there is no restrictions like FCRA. They don't ask you, if you, FDI comes and you set up a factory, you set up technology, it's very good. So what the philanthropists have agreed and decided to do, and this is on the record, they're even teaching courses. They're teaching courses to Indian philanthropists that you should work with the Americans and bring FDI rather than bring FCRA because it will not be known, it will not be seen. And so if you want to start a project, where you are doing social engineering, you are doing uh, grievance studies, you are doing youth empowerment, you are trying to teach the backward community or people that are considered that have been classified as that, or minorities, you are trying to empower them to fight. Uh, you do it not as an NGO doing philanthropy, you, you deny yourself the tax deduction. You won't get the tax deduction because only a non-profit gets tax deduction when you give donation to the non-profit. But if you have a pro proper company, then you invest in it, you're not going to get tax deduction. So you don't get tax deduction, fine. Uh, you put up a normal company and you call it uh, artificial intelligence, data sciences, uh, you know, some development of village management, development of health system, you do, you, all very nice things. And some of it will be good for good, doing good work. But you put in a caveat that we want to do a certain social justice part of it. When we go to the village and do health, we're going to do social justice part of the health. It is the same as a church giving food and giving social justice message. Okay. Now, it is a very tech company with a nice kiosk or on your phone uh, giving you some services, but have a social justice message. This is being done through FDI and not through FCRA. And this is therefore not on the scanner of the Indian government and I'm trying to alert the national security people that they have to look at this very closely. A good example is that, you know, there is something called Equality Labs in USA, which is doing this run by an Indian. They're working with Harvard and they're working with all these people who are fighting IITs, saying that IITs are bringing casteism and racism. And they're trying to do research, their own surveys and research on uh, uh, trying to show that uh, uh, there is a lot of this uh, abuse going on in United States so that they can take legal action. Now this, com this organization is not registered as an NGO so I cannot get the data on them because if you are registered as an NGO like my foundation, all your data is public, it's on the web, you are required to give it. 
And you go and type in the name of the organization. There are places where they'll tell you the last three years tax returns, where you got your money from, where you spent the money. It's all public. But since this is not a public entity, it's a private entity, you do not know who's funding it. So if you want to have secrecy, you keep a privately held company and you're not required to disclose anything. So this is a very good example of how the game is changed. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, with the time constraint, we need to stop question and answers round here only. Though I know there are many questions unanswered, but I hope with the book everything will be very much cleared. As a token of appreciation to Subramanam Swamiji and Rajiv Malhotraji, I would request our Presidential Secretary, Dr. Nagesh Bhandari, sir, to present the memento of a silver shield to Dr. Rajiv Malhotra, sir. Sukhasini, Sumadurabashini, Sukhada.